Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, Hoffa had just been elected president of the Teamsters in 1957 and needed some muscle. He turned to a mob boss and was actually mob boss of a territory that included Pittsburgh, uh, Russell Buffalino. And Buffalino provided him the best man that he had, which was Frank the Irishman Sheeran. They talked on the phone and Hoffa said to him, I heard you paint houses. And Sheeran said, I do my own carpentry work too, which is a reference to disposing of the body's carpentry, meaning that you build a coffin. Were you concerned, after Frank had already given you part of his story in 1991, that you knew too much, you could get whacked? He was one of those civilized individuals who did not insist upon agreement with his political principles as a precondition for conversation or friendship. The name of the book is I Heard You Paint Houses. It's the inside story of the Mafia, the Teamsters, and the last ride of Jimmy Hoffa uh, through the words of Frank the Irishman Sharon. Your relationship with Frank the Irishman Sharon began when? Well, it began when he uh, retained me to represent him in a medical condition that he had. I was a, a medical malpractice lawyer, and his medical condition required extensive surgery and aftercare that he couldn't get in prison. He was serving a 32-year life sentence for, um, excuse me, a 32-year sentence for labor racketeering. And uh, after nine years, uh, when it was obvious that he needed this uh, surgery or he would become bedridden for the rest of his life, um, he retained me to get him out, and I did presented the medical evidence and he got a medical hardship and he had read my book based on my interrogations and at that time when he got out he was 71 years old and he said to me that he wanted to write a book because he'd been accused of participating in the Hoffa disappearance by every book magazine article newspaper article ever written on the subject and he wanted to tell his side of it and uh, he'd read my, read my book the right to remain silent he dealt with me he knew me he knew me to be a no-nonsense man and I thought well you know uh, he wants to tell me something. He wants to unburden himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I teach interrogation and cross-examination, the first thing I teach is that the truth has its own way of coming out and wants to come out. The truth wants to rise to the surface. And uh, there have been many, many great uh, examples of, of great interrogations over the years in, in our culture, but throughout history. And uh, they're never easy, but the truth has a way of coming out. And I sat down with him in 1991, and five hours later, he had told me far more than he ever dreamed he would, and he called off this whole idea of a book. <laughs> and I said to him, well, you know, if you ever change your mind, give me a call. What? Eight years later, and by then he was 79 years old, um, and uh, he had returned to his Catholic roots. He had been raised a strict Catholic outside of Philadelphia. His father had studied for the priesthood. His mother went to church every single day of, of young Frank Sheeran's life. And um, his two aunts were nuns at the local uh, Catholic school that Frank attended. And he returned to his Catholic roots. He uh, obtained uh, absolution for all his sins from Monsignor Heldefor in Philadelphia and gave me a call. Mm. And so he wanted to sit down with me, and uh, I sat down with him. We met in his lawyer's office and, and set up the ground rules, which were, you're not going to pull out on me again, this time it's for real, and and you're going to subject yourself to my questioning. And he, he did. He stuck to his bargain for uh, close to five years. We, we talked every day. Uh, much of what was said we tape recorded. And a lot, of course, what we said was just talk, just conversation. 
and that's the way interrogations work often. And uh, at the, by, by the time it was over, he had given me intimate details of 15 uh, of his hits. He admitted that he had done 25 to 30 as best he could count, and um, I got his story. The Hoffa hit itself is three chapters out of 31. And it's fascinating. Uh, for people who have followed the, uh, uh, the Hoffa disappearance for all these years, uh, to hear another side of the story, our guest is Charles Brandt. He is the author of I Heard You Paint Houses. And tell our audience uh, what the title means. Well, the title uh, quickly means uh, to kill someone. Uh, to paint a house is to shoot someone, and the paint reference is the blood that splatters on the floor and the walls. It's a very old-school term. Uh, Sheeran was 83 when he finally died in December of 2003, and the, the mob that he was a part of was an uh, old-school mob. I, I'm using that phrase now. I actually stole it from a great review that the book got in the, in the New York Times a couple of Sundays ago, where the, um, the reviewer, who really loved the book the way you... Mm-hmm. the way you seem to have, um, really like the old school with a capital O, capital S nature of the of the mob talk and oh. the mobsters as contrasted with the uh, uh, more commonplace yeah. thugs and flamboyant people that you see depicted today, both on TV and in the flesh, such as... Uh, the Dapper Dons and mm. the John Gotti's. And I want to talk about some of those things as well, sure. but I heard you paint houses with the first words that Frank Sharon heard from whom? Well, from Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, Hoffa had just been elected president of the Teamsters in 1957 and needed some muscle. He turned to a mob boss. I was actually mob boss of a territory that included Pittsburgh, uh, Russell Buffalino. His headquarters was in uh, uh, scranton Wilkesbury, and um, he turned to Buffalino for some muscle, and Buffalino provided him the best man that he had, which was Frank the Irishman Sheeran. They talked on the phone, and Hoffa said to him, I heard you paint houses. And Sheeran said, I do my own carpentry work, too, which is a reference to disposing of the body's carpentry, meaning that you build a coffin. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, that begins uh, quite a journey that uh, Frank the Irishman Sheeran has with not only uh, Buffalino, Russell Buffalino, but also Jimmy Hoffa. Well, yeah, within the first week of his, uh, he was hired immediately over the phone, and during that first week he killed a man in Chicago on behalf of of Hoffa's ally in Chicago, Joey Glimpko, who's head of all Teamsters in Chicago, uh, and was uh, part of the um, Al Capone gang. Mm. Uh, We're talking with Charles Brandt, and as part of that lingo, part of that old school mafia lingo that you talk about, uh, I wrote some of them down, Uh, go see your friend. Oh, yeah. <laughs> go see your friend, Mains. Uh, go go up to see Russell Buffalino. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hoffa called Sheeran uh, a, a number of times, and the most particularly, I guess, the reference you're, you're talking about is go see your friend. Uh, in, in November of 1963, about a, a week before John F. Kennedy was killed, Hoffa, got, Hoffa gave that message to Sheeran, go see your friend. Sheeran drove up to Scranton, and when he got there, Russell Buffalino told him to go to Monty's, which which is a restaurant in Brooklyn. It's the oldest Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. It was closed on Sundays uh, to the public, but open to the Genovese gang on Sundays. And Buffalino actually had been acting head of the, of the Genovese family for a while when they were looking for someone to replace uh, the prior boss. And um, uh, he went there, and he was greeted by uh, Tony Provenzano, who handed him uh, a duffel bag. There were four rifles in it. Uh, they were put in the trunk of Sheeran's car. Sheeran was instructed to drive them to the Campbell Cement Company 
outside of, of Baltimore. When he got there, he turned those rifles over to a member of the Genovese uh, gang and to the pilot for Carlos Marcello, who was the crime boss of New Orleans. Uh, he had met this pilot, a fellow by the name of David Ferry, in the past uh, in, in meetings in Florida with uh, Russell and uh, Santos Traficante and Carlos Marcello. And uh, he never thought anything more about those rifles. Uh, oh, a few days later, Kennedy was killed, and he said the thought crossed his mind. He wondered if the mob had anything to do with it, and he wondered if the rifles had anything to do with it. But uh, there was this lone gunman, and, uh, and then uh, when Jack Ruby... Uh, shot uh, Hoffa, then Bells really went off. I mean, excuse me, shot uh, Oswald. Yeah. Uh, Bells really went off in, in Sharon's head because he had he had met Jack Ruby years earlier with uh, Hoffa and Sam Giancana in Chicago. Mm. And uh, But he didn't ask. You don't ask about things like that. He just let it go. Finally, in 1974, at Frank Sheeran Appreciation Night in Philadelphia, where the Latin Casino was closed down so that 3,000 of Sheeran's closest friends could pay tribute to the Irishman, Hoffa was the featured speaker. And uh, after that meeting, uh, Hoffa went on a, uh, a long-winded talk with Sheeran at the Warwick Hotel. And during that meeting, he told Sheeran that those rifles were used in the uh, Kennedy assassination. But he never told him how. And, uh, and Sheeran never learned anything more than that, although uh, uh, Buffalino himself said something that, that uh, confirmed that in Sheeran's mind, that somehow they played a role. Now, we reported in the book only what Sheeran knew, and uh, it, it was supplemented by some other information that has come up in recent years, including that of a, of a lawyer by the name of Frank Regano, who wrote a book about his experiences, and uh, he was Hoffa's lawyer, Carlos Marcello's lawyer and Santos Traficante's lawyer, and he claimed to have delivered a message from Hoffa to Carlos Marcello and Santos Traficante to the effect that uh, John F. Kennedy had to go. Yeah. There's been a lot of a lot of investigation into the mob's role in the killing of of uh, Kennedy, and to the extent that Sheeran knows anything at all, it's put in the book. It's not a smoking gun. The uh, review in in the New York Times pointed out it's circumstantial. But it certainly adds to uh, to the, the pieces of the puzzle that have uh, come in over the years that show a mob and Hoffa connection to uh, John Kennedy's assassination. Well, there was no greater hate that one man had for another than Hoffa had for Bobby Kennedy. And uh, you write in the book, uh, and I'm not sure where you get the information from, that uh, that they figured that if you killed Jack Kennedy, or if you killed Bobby Kennedy, Jack would come down on the mob with the full force of the law. But if you went after Jack, then Bobby, like cutting off the head of a snake. Yeah, the, uh, it actually is something that uh, Carlos Marcello was uh, was quoted as saying that uh, it, it was actually you don't you don't. It's an old Sicilian expression. You don't kill a dog by cutting off its tail. You kill a dog by cutting off its head. And they they wanted to get rid of Bobby Kennedy. Hoffa wasn't the only one who hated Bobby Kennedy. Carlos Marcello, at the at the time that JFK was killed. Marcello was on trial in, in New Orleans, a trial that, that Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy had instituted. It, it's people um, today don't understand, because we take the existence of the mob for granted, that prior to 1957, there was no unified understanding in this country that there was such a thing as organized crime. It, it was known that there were individual gangs, like the Capone Gang or the Purple Gang in Detroit or... Uh, 
the Longshoremen Gang in, in New York City, but that they were all connected and had their own little nation within a nation was something that J. Edgar Hoover himself denied the existence of. And it was Bobby Kennedy in 1961 that turned all that around. He, he put together the entire attention of the federal government on this newly discovered organized cr- yeah. network of organized crime. Charles Brand is our guest. I Heard You Paint Houses is the name of his book. And all those names you mentioned uh, involved with organized crime were also active in Cuba before Fidel Castro uh, overthrew the government and took over, kicked all those guys out. Kennedy was supposed to do something about it. They were also involved with the Bay of Pigs fiasco, weren't they? Yes, they were. Uh, the, the very idea that the CIA would have uh, enlisted the mob, particularly Russell Buffalino and Sam Giancana, to uh, participate in the Bay of Pigs would have astounded the world at the time it happened in 1961 and uh, through 1963. But by 1975, the world had changed, and uh, the church committee, Senator Church from Idaho, conducted famous closed-door hearings on this topic of the CIA's connection with the mob. And uh, the CIA, when they were summoned to the hearing, simply produced the documents and admitted flat out that they had hired and enlisted the mafia, particularly Russell Buffalino and Sam Giancana and another fellow named Johnny Roselli, to not just provide logistical support for the Bay of Pigs invasion in April of 1961, but to assassinate Fidel Castro. There was, there, there was going to be a poison pill used. There were several, several methods, and, and that, that uh, plot to kill Castro while it never got off the ground, it was something that was um, known clearly by Bobby Kennedy the moment he heard that his, uh, that his brother was killed. He turned to people and said, he picked up the phone, called Walter Sheridan, his trusted aide, uh, head of the Get Hoffa squad, and asked him to nose around to find out what he could about, about Hoffa's involvement. And then he called another aide and asked him to find out what he could about the mob's involvement. Bobby Kennedy immediately suspected both the mob and Hoffa in the assassination of his brother. Uh, the mob is a lot more than the mafia. Uh, one of the founders of the organized crime in America was a, a Jewish mobster named Meyer Lansky. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a lot more um, non-Italians in the mob than people realize. In 1980, when Rudy Giuliani, who was then uh, a U.S. attorney, sued the mob in the famous La Cosa Nostra, civil rico lawsuit uh, he named the top 26 mobsters uh, in la cosa nostra at the time two of them were non-italians and one of them was frank the irishman sheeran the other was was moish rockman were you concerned uh between the years 1991 and 1998 uh, after frank had already given you part of his story in 1991 that you knew too much you could get whacked well <laughs> uh I, I, it didn't concern me at the time because I knew that Sheeran, if if I knew too much and Sheeran told people I knew too much, then Sheeran would be would have been blabbing too much. Mm-hmm. So I, I had the sense that that Sheeran was not going to advertise to the people that could hurt him or me. Uh, and interestingly, by 1999, uh, those particular people were dead: Tony Giacalone in Detroit, Russell Buffalino in Scranton. Uh, Tony Provenzano uh, had died in jail. The people in, of power were dead. There are still two people who participated in the plot who are alive, 
but they had minor roles. Interestingly, the FBI had solved this uh, pretty quickly. By January of 1976, through informants and, uh, and other sources, the FBI put together a list of people that they uh, felt had done this. They didn't know how it was done. They didn't know who did what, whether Hoffa was killed, strangled, or what, or who shot him, or any of that. But, but they did have the list of the people involved, and that list turned out to be accurate in the end. They, they took them to trial on many other things, the way Al Capone had been taken to trial on tax evasion. They, they specifically set out to get them. Mm-hmm. And uh, in Sharon's case, uh, they took him to trial in 1980 on a, on a criminal RICO charge that involved um, a couple of murders and some arsons and uh, 22 unindicted co-conspirators, a big, big trial yeah. in Philadelphia. And Sharon testified in his own behalf in that trial and was found not guilty. Sharon also uh, tried to tell Jimmy Hoffa what it is. That's another one of those uh, phrases that they use. Yeah, that's actually my favorite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that can mean uh, uh, in mob, in the in the old school mob, uh, tell them what it is means you do what, you, what, what you're told to do or you're going to be killed. And they when, never re- he never really said that. He, he said, Jimmy, they're telling me, you know, you've you got to know what it is. Yeah, they, uh, Russell himself told me to tell you what it is, yeah. to which Hoffa replied, they wouldn't dare. Because Hoffa was threatening to go to the authority. He had all, these, all this information about the connections between the Teamsters and the mob, and he was going to blow the whistle if he didn't get back into the union. He was threatening that, yeah. publicly threatening that. Now, Sharon, in, in the book, I point out in Sharon's voice, because much of the book is told in the words of Frank Sharon, as, as gathered from my tapes of him over those years, um, Sharon didn't believe that Hoffa would have ever carried that threat out. He believed that Hoffa was involved in electioneering and puffing and really trying to get some airtime. You know, if Hoffa, if Hoffa announces to the media, I am going to do a good job when I take back the union, nobody will report that. Mm-hmm. But if Hoffa announces on a radio program, as he did in San Francisco, when I get in and get my hands on the records, I'm going to get the mobsters out of the Teamsters. Now, that was news, especially since everyone in America knew that Hoffa had brought the mobsters into the Teamsters in the first place mm-hmm. and that that topic had been thoroughly investigated by Senator McClellan's uh, famous crime commission hearings in the mid-'50s. And Hoffa was... Uh was beside himself because he felt he was double-crossed by Nixon and by Frank Fitzsimmons and subsequently uh, the mob that was controlling the Teamsters at the time. Well, that's exactly why he was beside himself. He, uh, he felt betrayed. He had spent time in jail, and he was under the impression that when he got out of jail, he was simply going to slide back in as president of the Teamsters. And um, the man, the puppet he had put in, Frank Fitzsimmons, refused to turn the Teamsters over to him, and when Nixon pardoned him, a pardon that Hoffa paid for, paid cash for, uh, the uh, Nixon administration tacked a provision onto the pardon that prohibited Hoffa from being involved in union activities so that he couldn't take back the presidency at the 1976 election. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that and John Mitchell and the money that you're talking about and uh, how Hoffa had to fight those little provisions to, uh, to try and get back into the Union and also how Jimmy Hoffa died, where he died and who killed him. 
according to Frank Sharon, the Irishman. I Heard You Paint Houses is the name of the book. Charles Brandt is our guest. He is the author. It's the inside story of the Mafia, the Teamsters, and the last ride of Jimmy Hoffa. We have more coming up. Charles, you, you wouldn't find sharp-dressed men uh, the way John Gotti uh, dressed in the in the 1980s and 1990s. These guys, the Buffalinos, the Provincenzos, and uh, and folks like that, they they kept things on the lowdown. They they weren't uh, high-profile type people, were they? Well, they weren't, especially Russell Buffalino. He uh, he looked like he might have worked in a gas station. He didn't look like he even owned a gas station, and he uh, uh, he conducted his affairs in that old Sicilian style. He was born in Sicily, and uh, he he just had a, a very old-school way of behaving and a demeanor. They didn't like to call attention to themselves. Did not. Did not at all. Mm-hmm. We were talking about uh, Jimmy Hoffa and how he felt betrayed by not only uh, Frank Fitzsimmons uh, and organized crime, but also uh, the Nixon White House, uh, who who he paid for the pardon. Tell us about that. Well, there were, there were two cash deliveries made to Attorney General John Mitchell of $500,000 each. One of those deliveries was made by the Irishman himself. Um, He brought the money to a Hilton hotel in uh, Washington, D.C. He was greeted there by uh, Mitchell, who picked up the suitcase from him and and left with it. Years later, uh, in the the Watergate tapes, there's a a snippet of, of conversation between Nixon and and Howard and John Dean about the uh, payoffs to the Watergate burglars to keep them quiet while they were in jail, payoffs to their families. And Nixon said to Dean, find out how much they want. Uh, we, we could get the cash. A million dollars would be no problem. As the President of the United States talking about raising a million dollars in cash without any trouble at all, and that's because uh, he'd been taking it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we at the time, uh, who, who could have imagined that his vice president... Spiro Agnew was still on the payroll of government contractors in Maryland and uh, was drummed out of office uh, shortly after. And there was no doubt that John Mitchell, the former attorney general, was the bagman who was taking the money? Oh, there's absolutely no doubt about that. I mean, Sheeran knew him, knew who he was, and delivered it personally to him. That was uh, 500000 that Sheeran delivered. Sheeran was told by Buffalino that another 500000 was delivered by one of Provenzano's men, Sal Bergoglio. Sheeran explained that Nixon was getting money both from Hoffa and from those who were backing Frank Fitzsimmons. The, the Hoffa money was to get Hoffa out of jail. The Fitzsimmons money was to get Hoffa out of jail, too, but with a restriction on the pardon, and that Hoffa didn't realize that when he walked out of jail. The pardon also did not go through the normal channels of going through the FBI and the sentencing judge for their comment it went directly from Mitchelton and signed by Nixon and boom Hoffa walked out the jail out, out of doors in uh, around Christmas time in 1971 took the whole country by surprise it was another delivery of cash to uh, to Mitchell this was after Mitchell was disgraced before he went to jail but he was no longer attorney general in his uh, lawsuit to have the restriction removed from his pardon uh, Hoffa obtained an affidavit from Mitchell, saying that when he was Attorney General and when 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 uh, that that and, and Nixon as President, that they had not themselves intended for a restriction to have been put on the pardon. And that affidavit, signed and notarized, signed by Mitchell, was intended to help Hoffa in his lawsuit to have the restrictions removed. And for that, Hoffa paid two hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. Again, cash delivered 
by uh, Sheeran to Mitchell. And in each instance, Hoffa believing that he was going to be cleared of this stuff so that he could uh, run for the presidency of the Teamsters again. Yes, and, and also for the first time in his career, Hoffa was using some pretty good lawyers. He had used a lot of yes-men lawyers in the past, but he was using some top-notch lawyers who had assured him that he had a case that he was going to win anyway, that uh, w- without reference to affidavits from Mitchell or or whatever, that uh, that Nixon, as President of the United States, had the power to, under the Constitution to pardon a man, but he had no power to put a restriction on the pardon. The Constitution didn't give him that power. Okay. And so he was he was assured that he was going to win this, and uh, but he, he just couldn't leave well enough alone. He couldn't accept that assurance. Yeah. He still had to go out there and pay for an affidavit, and he still had to go out there and make a lot of noise about getting the, getting this union back and getting rid of the mob. And another one of the expressions that uh, you no doubt uh, read in the book was, uh, when in doubt, have no doubt. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's a chilling expression. They had, they had doubt about Hoffa. Uh, they, they felt that his thinking was, had become distorted by his rage and his anger and his feeling of betrayal. And uh, they can afford to have no doubt in their line of work. Mm-hmm. And they had to kill him. And uh, and part of that rage was uh, focused at Tony Provenzano. That's correct. Uh, they, they were in jail together, and uh, Provenzano was trying to get a favor from Hoffa, and Hoffa said to him, it's people like you that got me in, in this trouble in the first place. And Provenzano, who was a very powerful mob boss and a powerful teamster, he was head of his own joint council of teamsters in, uh, in New Jersey and New York, he threatened to rip Hoffa's guts out. Mm. And, and also to kidnap his granddaughter. Yeah, that's right. He was going to kidnap and kill his granddaughter and Richie. And that's something that that, that uh, the Irishman said. You know, you don't mess with people's wives, and you don't mess with their families. That's correct. Is that and right? That, so, well, how did Tony Pro get away with that? Well, it was the degree of, of rage that he felt toward Hoffa, yeah. and um, he got away with it because he had confidence that at some point his position was going to prevail, and it did. Yeah. You see, Hoffa had allies in the in the mob. His allies were Russell Buffalino, Carlos Marcello, and Santo Traficante as well as Sam Giancana in Chicago. Uh, he lost Giancana about uh, two weeks before he was killed himself. Giancana was killed, uh, mm-hmm. cooking sausages in his, um, in his own apartment. Yeah. He was about to was testify to before that church committee that I mentioned earlier on the mob's involvement with the CIA against Castro. And before he could testify, he was rubbed out. The inside story of the Mafia, the Teamsters, and the last ride of Jimmy Hoffa. And uh, Mr. Brandt interviewed, over a course of a couple of years, the Irishman, who was pretty close, I don't know, to go far as far as, say, the right-hand man of Russell Buffalino and, uh, and Jimmy Hoffa, but he certainly was well-respected uh, by Buffalino, who was considered the godfather. Uh, there are a number of hits in the book that you talk about uh, and, and that uh, the Irishman talked about. Uh, he told you that it was he and the redhead uh, who did the hit on uh, on Joey Gallo? That's correct. Uh, he said that to me. He said he went in as a lone gunman. The redhead was his driver. And I'm from New York City, and I, and I remembered the Gallo hit, and I remembered that everyone talked about three Italian gangsters walking into Umberto's clam house and opening fire on Gallo and his bodyguard. And uh, so I, I grilled Sheeran on this especially, cross-examined him. He stuck to his guns. And so that's how I printed it in the book. Mm-hmm. 
he sounded very convincing when he said it to me, and he stuck to his guns. And, and um, after the book came out, uh, the, one of the foremost authorities on, on the mob in the nation, a, a writer by the name of Jerry Capici, who has a website called Gangland, uh, posted an article he had written where he believed Sheeran's story completely. Uh, Capici had responded to the scene at Umberto's Clam House as a reporter for the New York Daily News and vividly remembered that it was a lone gunman. He went back to his articles and checked his article and, and uh, from the New York Daily News at the time, and his article quotes Chief Al Seedman as coming, walking out of Umberto's Clam House and saying, all this carnage is the work of a lone gunman. And uh, I was just thrilled to, to read that and to hear about that and uh, to receive that uh, endorsement from Capici in that way. It was interesting to read uh, your work in the words of uh, Frank Sharon, uh, who said how they went about doing this stuff, that they did it in, in, in broad daylight a lot of times, and that they, they were confident that because of the noise that was made, and he even goes through the different kind of guns that they use, depending on what effect they want to have, that there aren't going to be any witnesses. I, it's, it's really chilling stuff. I went through some of my tapes recently, for a, uh, an ABC broadcast that, that's go- coming up soon, I don't know when, but on TV, and found some uh, videotape where he talked about that. Uh, it's almost like a primer on, on how you kill people mm-hmm. and how that, that at times you want noise, you want people diving under tables. And he had two guns that he used in, in the uh, Gallo assassination, and he drew upon his, his, uh, his war experiences. For that and for so much that he, that he did uh, when he was working for the mob and for Hoffa as a killer, he had 411 combat days when the average number was 80. Two of the chapters in the book are devoted to his war effort, and I have to tell you that that was the hardest material to draw out of him. He said to me that, what do you need that for? Uh, when I went to trial in 1980 on murder charges, I, I wouldn't talk about the war when the lawyer wanted me to. Uh, because, uh, you know, I'm a veteran and trying mm-hmm. to exploit that in front of the jury. He said, I wouldn't do it then. He said, the real heroes are the ones that are buried over there. Yeah. And why am I going to do that with you now? And I, mean, I, I listen to those tapes also, and I hear him abusing me on those tapes, <laughs> yelling at me for that he didn't want to talk about the war. It was easier to get him to talk about murders. Mm-hmm. And, and admit to murders and talk about World War II. But he talked about the, uh, World War II in terms of uh, how when he took orders from his, off- his commanding officer to take the prisoners across the line and hurry back, he knew what that meant. You know, the code hurry back meant that the, that the two or three prisoners would be shot escaping. And uh, he was in uh, a, a division that was designated by Patton as his killer division, and, and that division was told not to take prisoners. In fact, the initial uh, prisoner deaths that uh, led to some scandals and some court-martialing came out of, the, all of them came out of that division, the Thunderbird division. We're talking with Charles Brandt, the author of I Heard You Paint Houses. The reason that, the, uh, that Frank Sharon uh, was so well-respected within the ranks of the Buffalinos and the Provenzanos and uh, Marcella and Giancana, all these guys in Hoffa, is because he wasn't a rat. He wasn't talking about anything. That's correct. He was what they call a stand-up guy, mm-hmm. and that's what garnered him all the uh, all the favors, all the well. He's, well, he that, says, that's part of it. The the other part of it was his willingness to to do things like mm-hmm. he did in the, in the Joey Gallo. He was fearless mm-hmm. in that Joey Gallo hit. Yeah. I think the reason that the, that the movie about Joey Gallo has three uh, mobsters uh, doing the killing is that the the people just can't imagine when they sit down to write a script that one man could have done that. Mm-hmm. And so they, 
they get uh, they get thinking how to be three. What about he, he was just a, a really an extremely tough tough human being mm-hmm. at, at six foot four, um, two hundred and twenty pounds, uh, remarkable shape, physical specimen, very very intelligent man, and very charming man. Uh, my wife Nancy had to has has said uh, that she has. She had to remind herself that he was a killer when she was in his company. Mm. Uh, did he have that ability? Now, he was an old man by the time you met up with him. That's correct. He, he was 83 he was when he died. Broken, broken old man. He'd been in prison, or he went to school, as they say. <laughs> he had been in school. That's yeah. right. <laughs> he'd been in school several <laughs> times uh, over the course of his life, uh, and he was ready to talk by that point. But was he able to separate uh, what he did as a job, as a hitman, and um, his personal life. And I know he had a difficult marriage. Uh, his marriage ended in divorce. His one daughter uh, refused to talk to him after the Hoffa disappearance. Well, yeah. Uh, he returned from the Hoffa killing. He, he had been in Detroit, he claimed, only for a wedding, a mob wedding. Uh, and he returned to, uh, to his first wife's house. He'd been divorced from her uh, and was remarried, but uh, he was still supporting her. And he, he, was, he was there to give her some cash on the Sunday Follow uh, that Wednesday is when Hoffa had disappeared. He walked in to give his wife cash, and his next to oldest daughter Peggy was in the kitchen with his uh, his ex wife. They were watching the news of the Hoffa disappearance on TV. She took one look at her father, and and of all his four daughters, this was the daughter he had been the closest to uh, in her childhood, and she knew him like a book. She took one look at him, and she said to him, "I don't even want to know a man like you." And those were the last words that he ever heard from her. Mm. She didn't even attend his funeral. Wow. And it's uh, and she knew what kind of guy he was uh, and what he did uh, to make all that money. But the family was close with the Hoffa family. Is that right? Yeah. The 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 um, in in fact the Hoffa children. Um, Judge Barbara Crancer wrote here in 1995 saying that, you know, you're one of those people that claimed you were loyal to my father, but you know what happened to him, and uh, I want you to tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, she repeated that in, in, uh, in a letter to the publisher. When the publisher wrote her and said, are you the author of this letter? She said, yeah, not only did I write it in 1995, but I wanted to tell what happened to my father. Uh, but he never did respond to her letter. Well, the book actually is, is the response to that letter, and he, and he couldn't. He felt... One of the there were, there were three things that he felt uh, very bad about. Uh, one was her reaction to to this news. Another, of course, was his own daughters um, maybe thinking even worse uh, of him than they already did, and um, alienating them the way Peggy already had been alienated from him. And uh, and the third thing were those mobsters who knew that he knew things about them, the mobsters that were still not only alive but active and, and very much involved still in mob activities. And he was concerned that if they thought he would say something about Russell, even though Russell was dead and he knew all these things about them, that they might forget that he was this stand-up guy, that he was this man among men who would never dream of ratting, and he didn't want to be known as a rat. And in the end, he actually chose his own death the same way that... Uh, he had chosen a life expectancy of 25 to 30 men in his mob and Teamster-related uh, hits. Uh, he, all he had wrong with him in the end was a was an inflamed colon. They did a colonoscopy on him uh, on October 29, 2003. And just before he went in for the colonoscopy, 
he agreed to do a videotape with me, and that was something that I knew I was going to need for the book and uh, for the promotion of the book. And he agreed to do that, but he really didn't want to do it. And I even you even see it on the videotape where I say, Frank, you, you don't seem to want to do this. If you don't want to do it, we won't. And he said, no, it's just something you got to get into. Mm-hmm. you got to work yourself into. And he stood behind all the material. He held the book up. He stood behind all the material in the book, including what happened to Jimmy Hoffa on July 30th, 1975. And, and then the next day I visited him, and he asked me to pray with him. And I have that on audio tape. We said a Hail Mary and an Our Father together. By the time my wife and I went up to see him a few days later, he had already begun to, to show signs of anorexia. He had not been eating. And he allowed uh, my wife to give him some uh, water. He allowed me to give him a little of Italian ice from his tray of food, but he wouldn't eat any of the stuff on his tray. He was just on a, on a mildly bland diet. He was allowed to have chicken and... Uh, and you know green beans and mashed potatoes he just couldn't have the gravy mm-hmm. and uh he starved himself uh, he was dead six weeks after he uh he gave me that videotape yeah. now you have the videotape uh, you have the audio tapes uh yeah. you are very honest in the book you write that the first publisher turned it down why well he had uh people who confess often well always have many many second thoughts it's a tug of war a come and go uh yeah, I want to tell, but I'm not so sure. And they often save themselves some out, something within the, within the framework of the confession that they can pull on and, and pull it all apart. And he gave me a letter that uh, had presumably been signed by Jimmy Hoffa. I told him, look, this is something that I'm going to have checked. He said, okay. And um, I had an initial publisher and uh, gave it to them to send to Henry Lee's lab in... Um, in Connecticut, the famous uh, forensic uh, um, doctor. Pathologist. And Lee's, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that's it, pathologist. And yeah. Lee's lab uh, found it to be a laughable forgery. It, it presumably had been signed by Hoffa in 1974, and it was written on, on paper in 1994. And I know who did it. I know who, uh, who gave that to Sharon, uh, this uh, con man that Sharon uh, was in jail with. Oh, okay. So, uh, but based on that, the publisher said, uh, can't "Well, they anything. didn't." Yeah, they actually what the what the editor said. I know that uh, that Sheeran killed um, killed Hoffa, but the the head of the company said, I, "These people that Sheeran associates with concern me, and I'm concerned that uh, this might have been been an attempt to extort money from us. That we put this book out, and then he comes to me with the with this letter and says, uh, he and this con man." Okay, we want a uh, two hundred and fifty thousand dollars from you, or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a uh, it, it, this was a um, this was not an afternoon on the witness stand. This was a lot of of, of interrogation and a lot of uh, cross examination. And fortunately, I'm the, I was blessed to be in the position to do this and to be a person who teaches this subject and who understands these things and who knows what's going on. Let's go to July 30th, 1975, or maybe just a couple of days before that, Charles. And what were the circumstances that bring us to July 30th? You used the expression just before the break, uh, going to Australia, and that's an expression that means someone's killed. They go down under. And uh, as Hoffa became more reckless with his rhetoric, uh, he lost the support of Russell Buffalino, Carlos Marcello, and Santos Traficante, and the decision was made to kill him. Uh, uh, Sheeran was told that he had to do it 
or she, as Sharon expressed to me, if I didn't, Hoffa would have been dead, just as dead, and I'd have been killed too. And this is typical because they always try and get somebody who's close to the person who's going to get hit because they wouldn't suspect it. That's correct. The, the person wouldn't suspect it. They'll, it would not be a messy hit. There would be no struggle. It would be neater, cleaner. And furthermore, if any forensic evidence is found, like a, a head hair or clothing or anything, well, you'd expect that. We're friends. You, mm -hmm. you, you're going to find my fiber on your, on your clothing. So um, and who, for, for a number of reasons, they use people that know, know the person. Who ordered the hit? Close. Ruffolino actually ordered the hit. He was the final ordering, the final person to, to, um, to make the hit happen. There were others that were pushing for it, lobbying for it, and wanted it to happen. And Buffalino finally said, okay, mm. let's do it. Just to shut him up. Well, just to shut Hoffa up, yeah, yeah that Hoffa had to go. Yeah. And Buffalino warned Hoffa to back off. And he told Sheeran to tell Hoffa what it is. Mm -hmm. and, and Hoffa just said uh, they wouldn't dare. I'm going to keep running, and I'm going to get even with everybody that... Uh, that screwed me. All right. Uh, now, in the mo in the Hoffa, movie Hoffa, uh, everything takes place around this uh, uh, this Marcus Red Fox restaurant. Is that it? Well, the Marcus Red Fox is is in real life, and in, in, in the movie there was a small restaurant. It was more like a diner. The Marcus Red Fox is actually a pretty exclusive restaurant. You needed to wear a coat to get in, and and. Mm -hmm. uh, it had a dress code. And it had been set up a couple of days in advance because Hoffa had written down on a little pad beside his telephone that he was to meet with, uh, who, Russ and so, Frank? No, no. actually, uh, actually, Tony Giacalone, uh, Detroit mobster, had arranged a meeting for Hoffa with Tony Provenzano, his arch enemy, the fellow who had threatened to rip his guts out and kill his grandchildren um, and kidnap his granddaughter. Um, and uh, that, that meeting was changed by Sheeran. Uh, Sheeran was going to be Hoffa's backup at that meeting, but uh, when Sheeran got there in a car driven by uh, Hoffa's uh, foster son, Chucky O'Brien, with Sally Bug, Sal Bergulio in the back seat, uh, it was explained to Hoffa, who was waiting for, for uh, Tony Giacalone and Tony Provenzano, that the meeting location was changed to a house on Beaverland Road, not far from the restaurant, because Russell Buffalino himself was going to attend the meeting. And, and Hoffa viewed that as good for him, because Buffalino was the, the big boss, and Buffalino was, was his ally. Mm -hmm. And so he was going to be well-represented. Sheeran was going to be his backup for the meeting. So he didn't have any qualms about getting in the car, because Sharon was in there and Chucky O'Brien was driving the car. That's correct. And so Hoffa left his own car in the, in the restaurant parking lot. Uh, Hoffa was known to have a gun in that uh, glove compartment. He left a gun and glove com and and uh, in the glove compartment and the car behind. Got in the car with uh, with Sheeran, Sal Bergoglio, and Chucky O'Brien. Was driven to the house on Beeland Road uh, and uh, got out of that car with Sheeran. O'Brien drove the car away with Sal Bergoglio in the back seat. Um, they went into the house. Uh, there's a small vestibule inside the house. They passed through the vestibule. Sheeran shut the door. When they got into the hallway, Hoffa could see immediately that there was no meeting. I've been to a meeting, a uh, similar type of meeting, and you, there's the smell of cigars and the, the tink, clinking of wine glasses and, and just chatter and Italian food, all you know, and big trays of food. None of that was there to greet him. He knew there was a problem. 
He assumed it was a trap for both himself and his ally, Frank Sheeran. He headed for the door, and as he as he brushed past Sheeran and reached out for the door, Sheeran shot him in the vestibule. Uh, the Fox News Channel got a scoop on the on the book after the book was written, but before it was released, they went out. They read the book and they they hired a forensic team like CSI on TV. They went out and and uh, went to the house and and the owner very obligingly let them in with a forensic team. They sprayed luminol on the um, uh, on the hardwood floor. Luminol causes old blood to glow in the dark. The largest collection of blood was found right in the vestibule where uh, Sheeran was shot. Uh, excuse me, where Sheeran shot Hoffa behind the right ear. Uh, a trail of blood went out the uh, down the hallway, uh, seven drops uh, in, in, into the kitchen and uh, into the back door, out the out the back kitchen door where uh, the body was put. According to what Sheeran was told, Sheeran doesn't know this for a fact. He was told by Buffalino that the body was uh, put in the trunk of the, of the car and. Uh, Two cleaners who had been waiting in the kitchen to clean up drove the body to Bagnasco's funeral parlor in Detroit where arrangements were made for its cremation. Wow. And so what's left of the body of Jimmy Hoffa is the, the, the trail of blood on that house in Detroit. The prosecutor then reopened the case, and uh, the, the original team hadn't found enough blood to uh, test the DNA. You need a sufficient quantity, and it was the prosecutor's hope that by... Uh, removing the floorboards, they'd find additional blood that, that went through the cracks to see if they could put a DNA label. But the pattern of blood itself is phenomenal. In fact, just the, the interior of that house is exactly as Sharon had described it. You went to a number of these places with Sharon. Um, well, I didn't go inside the house. I, he, he and I drove to Detroit, and we found the house, and that was in the book, the location of the house, as well as a photo of the house. So the Fox News team was able to go right to the right to the front door. Mm-hmm. And so they weren't able to get a DNA match uh, of Jimmy Hoffa from that blood sample then. Well, they couldn't get enough blood to do a DNA yeah. test. Okay. So that they, you know. Mm-hmm. So, so all this speculation over the years uh, that Jimmy Hoffa's buried at the end zone in Giant Stadium, that he's uh, swimming in the fish with the fishes down in Florida somewhere, uh, that's all made up. Uh, people just have vivid imaginations. It's all made up, and I was very happy to receive a letter from a, a Hoffa scholar, Professor Arthur Sloan, who had written a book called Hoffa, uh, and he had uh, he had given the best explanation uh, for what happened to Hoffa, and that was that Sal Bergoglio, who was in that car, uh, was the one who killed Hoffa. He read my book. He wrote me a wonderful letter saying that uh, he now believes that Sheeran is the one who... who who pulled the trigger, and uh, and he's convinced, and so it, it renders his book no longer pertinent, at least on that topic. Mm-hmm. And he said that all the rest of my book, uh, as a labor relations professor, was was very authentic. And you say Sally Bugs uh, didn't wouldn't have gone into the meeting because Hoffa wouldn't have thought that he was big enough uh, to attend a meeting like that. That's correct. Hoffa didn't even know the man. He yeah. would not have uh, not have gone into that house with Sally Bugs. Right. And, and Chucky uh, O'Brien. Chucky O'Brien had been questioned repeatedly over the years. It seems his name always came up in terms of the disappearance. And you say he was just some unwitting stooge who was driving the car. Yeah, that's what Sheeran said. Of it. anyone should be forgiven, it's Chucky O'Brien. He didn't know anything. He said, "He said if if Chucky knew anything, he wouldn't be alive today. Mm. He just drove the car to. He drove Jimmy Hoffa to a meeting. That's all he knew. Mm. And he was scared to death afterwards. He 
he was found hiding under a bed at one uh, Teamster convention. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so Jimmy Hoffa was killed in that house, shot in that house by Frank Sharon. According to Frank Sharon, mm-hmm. uh, he was taken out of the house uh, by the two brothers who were in the kitchen uh, at the time, uh, and uh, taken to a funeral home and cremated. That's correct. And it was done all very quickly, within a couple of hours. Yeah, actually, from the time Hoffa was supposed to have his first meeting until he was dead and cremated was an hour. They did find a a hair of Jimmy Hoffa's in that car. Yeah, uh, Chucky O'Brien admitted that he was in possession of that maroon mercury all day and that Hoffa was never in that car. And uh, he passed the lie detector test on the Maury Povich show to that effect. Uh, He swore Hoffa was never in that car. Well, after Sheeran had told me that Hoffa was in the backseat of that car, and had repeated that to Eric Sean at Fox News when I when I arranged a meeting for for um, for Frank with mm-hmm. uh, with Eric Sean. Um, that was in May of 2001, September 2001. The FBI announced that a hair that had been found in that car and preserved over the years by the FBI had recently been tested for DNA because it was a new a new type of, of test available now, a mitochondrial DNA test. And that test proved that uh, Hoffa had been in the car. The initial report said that Hoffa, that the hair was taken from the trunk of the car. And I went back to Sharon and again grilled him. You know, this news article says he was in the trunk of the car. You're telling me he was in the back seat. And Sharon stuck to his guns. He was never in the, in the trunk of that car. I don't care what the news report says. And I believed him. And I put it in the way he told me. Hmm. Well, after the book was written, uh, I was provided by a former um, organized crime investigator uh, for the state of New York. I was provided a copy of this famous Hoffex memo. It was a 36-page memo that the uh, FBI put together in January of 76, where they named the uh, six suspects. And uh, in that memo, they state very clearly that a, a single hair was removed from the back seat of the car, the passenger side, exactly where Sheeran had, had told me and insisted that Hoffa had said. Not found in the trunk, despite the original reports. I recommend the book to everyone. Charles Brent, congratulations. It's fascinating. Thank you very much. Fab- I really appreciate being on. This Fabulous. Book. Very thorough uh, analysis of everything here tonight. Thank I, you. I Heard You Paint Houses is the name of the book. The inside story of the mafia, the Teamsters, and the last ride of Jimmy Hoffa. Charles Brandt is the author. Thank you, Charles, for being with us. Thank you so much. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network. 